In bear markets, the good people go build products. And in the bull markets, people speculate. Once you get to a critical mass, there's a lot of friction that exists between the existing banking world and the emerging crypto payments world. We're all in. We believe that blockchain is the future. We believe that investing and the alternative asset class of crypto should be part of people's future portfolios. We need to get to a point as an industry where we can point to things and say, hey, this is a productized example of where the blockchain is better and it's being used at scale. But remember, you're building a community. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski, and in this episode, we sit down with Miles from B21. They are developing a personal wealth manager for crypto assets. In this episode, we dive into the blockchain industry with a fintech veteran. This is a great episode, so stay tuned. Hey, Hacker. Sorry to interrupt this great podcast. It's David Smook, founder and CEO of Hacker Noon, and we're raising money for the first time, and we're doing it from the people. If you want to buy shares in Hacker Noon, visit HackerNoonShares.com. Help us make the best place for tech professionals to publish. Hey, Miles, tell us a bit about what you're working on and what your background is. Hey, Trent. Thanks for having me today on the show. Myself, I've been a lifetime entrepreneur working on fintech projects. I I started a long time ago in the wireless industry. And when prepaid came out in the wireless industry, I had an opportunity to really improve that industry through some tech that resulted in me getting seven patents in processing and prepaid. And I really just took that through my career and I've developed enterprise payment solutions both in the United States and in Europe over the last 25 plus years. So I've been really a fintech entrepreneur and building enterprise payment systems for, I think, the term fintech was really used. Currently, a new project um, you're working on in the crypto space, right? Yeah, I had, uh, in the last project I worked on, we had the fortunate opportunity to develop the crypto link debit cards. And this is where we took uh, essentially cryptocurrency wallets and we linked them to a traditional debit card. And we developed some technology that we called RHA that sat in between the incumbent payment systems and cryptocurrency. And we enable people to essentially spend in the real world their cryptocurrencies utilizing a debit card. And so it was a real seamless way to get liquidity. And that project just taught us so much about what was happening in the industry and understanding what some of the friction points were. And so we took a lot of learnings out of that project. And now we've moved into B21, where we're developing a, a crypto asset management platform, which is uh, full of friction points in many different areas, and we're trying to solve some of those key friction points. And do you mind diving a little bit deeper into, you know, the fact that you do have a past project in the crypto space? Because, you know, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of companies in this space. So it's kind of unusual to already have someone that, you know, kind of has already had a successful project, you know, then had to wind that project down and is now doing a second project in the space. A lot of people are, you know, mostly kind of first timers when they're first going to blockchain. So you're kind of a blockchain veteran in the sense that you've already had a successful project. So can you tell us a little bit kind of like what the challenges you face there and, you know, why, you know, now you're you're pivoting and working on something else? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate to have worked on that project. We learned a lot. Um, the, 
you know, the, the business case was that there was a lot of people holding crypto and we're going back about three and a half to four years ago. A lot of people were holding crypto, but there was really no way to spend it um, despite efforts to create, um, you know, to create merchant acceptance for crypto. It really never got traction beyond say a hundred thousand worldwide merchants. And so um, the, the irony of the whole thing is that we developed the underlying technology at the request of Visa. Um, Visa was trying to figure out how to enable people to spend their airline uh, miles uh, utilizing a debit card in, in real time. And so the idea is that you would swipe your debit card um, at a retailer and you would essentially be spending points. And so we built a proof of concept for Visa um, at the request of their private label group. And then we turned that, uh, when that project really never got traction because the airlines didn't really want to liquidate the points, um, said, wait a minute, we can use this for, for Bitcoin really at the time. And we said, why can't we, uh, you know, why can't we use this remote store of value called Bitcoin and enable people to spend it over a debit card? So we, you know, that project was pretty crazy. We, we issued around a million cards um, over the period of the project, both virtual and physical cards. And we had customers in more than 70 countries. And um, the volume that we were doing at the time was, uh, you know, started out at zero, by the way. And we, I, I remember keeping a graph on my desk, which was trying to get to a million dollars a month of conversion. And in the end, you know, we were, do, we were doing between 150 to $200 million a month and people spending cryptocurrencies via a debit card. And so uh, it, was, it was very exciting times. We got to work with the best CEOs in the industry. Some of our early clients were people like Zappo and YRX, BTCC, ANX, a lot of the names that you would know in the industry today um, that took advantage of the tech that we built. And um, it had kind of a sad ending in the end. The irony is that Visa ended up shutting down the project um, and the actual idea came from an unrelated Visa project that we had worked on earlier. Um, but uh, we learned a lot. We learned the pressures that come from a uh, banking system when you start moving volume of, of crypto to fiat. Yep. You know, we had a lot of uh, issues that came about with regards to correspondent banking and just moving money from uh, people like uh, BitPay that we work with a lot and moving BTC to USD. And you just realize that once you get to a critical mass, um, there's a lot of friction that exists um, between the, you know, the existing banking world and the emerging crypto uh, payments world. And so um, we're, we feel fortunate that we have those lessons behind us. Um, and we, you know, we understand that good ideas uh, and actually great products can get uh, stopped because of um, misunderstandings or, or, or differences of views on, on these opportunities in the marketplace. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about what you're working on now. So now you're working on B21, which is a significantly different product, um, but you seem to be focusing a lot more on the user experience and the user interface and making it simpler for people to invest in crypto. Yeah, the, the, you know, the thing that got us excited is through the last three years, we started you know, understanding what investing in crypto um, is, but it's not. And one of the early observations that was very technically oriented, um, the user interfaces were typically built for traders and technical analysis. Um, the whole idea of the mass market managing their private keys, um, well, I think there's a lot of merit to people controlling their own money, as, as I think the maximalists like to say. Um, it's quite complicated if you want to own 15 or 20 cryptocurrencies and, and as an individual you have to control your private keys or you have to go buy a hardware device or have paper wallets. Um, and so 
we really saw three areas that we could make a big difference. One of the areas was the user experience could be improved greatly. Um, I'm really addressing that user experience towards the mass market um, user instead of a, a technical user. Um, the on-ramps and the off-ramps, so going from fiat to crypto and then crypto back to fiat, there's a lot of friction that needs to be taken out of that path. And so, again, to go to a mass market adoption where we invite you know, the next or we enable the next 20 or 30 million people to invest in crypto, you have to improve those experiences. And the third thing that we're really focusing on is custody. Um, again, while we appreciate the benefits of holding your own private keys for a mass market um, portfolio holder, it, we just don't think that, that it's a great solution that each and every individual try to figure out how to securely manage their, their assets. And so um, from day one, our, our view is to be regulated and we actually wanted to subject ourselves to regulation. And we wanted to provide a regulated custodial service where there was uh, a lot more transparency and confidence that could be placed in what we're doing for the consumer. Hey, hackers, do you have a timely tech story you want to get published? Maybe you recognize the way certain systems trend affecting our everyday lives or have a vision of the future for the blockchain technology. Maybe you're on the field of play and know what it takes to make a great team or how to remain agile in today's competitive tech-rich environment. Share your expertise with the community at large on Hacker Noon. Email us, stories at hackernoon.com, and a real human will review your submission. And talk a little bit more about custody, because I think that's, you know, I've looked at a lot of crypto and blockchain projects myself, and that's always kind of been the sticky point where I'm like, how are you going to manage custody? Um, so what are some of the things you're looking at and what are you exploring in the, on the custody side of things? So there's really two parts to the custody, if you, to, to keep it simple. One part is the, the, you know, the technical infrastructure side of how you secure the assets, and the other is the um, regulation and the oversight. So as far as the regulation and the oversight, um, being a regulated custodian means that we have to, uh, we have to answer to uh, an oversight body, which is the regulator, and there are certain things that we have to do with regards to our own liquidity and transparency in the assets that we hold. And so... I think just the very function of having a regulator and having that oversight by an independent third party is something that consumer is going to be looking forward to participating in. On the physical side, um, we kind of have a two-part plan. Uh, in phase one, we're working with a well-known uh, enterprise wallet provider and custodian. Um, it's no secret because it's in our it's in our paperwork. We're working with BitGo, mm -hmm. BitGo's custodial service and. And uh, a lot of it, has, so we start out with, you know, working with a good provider that helps us to provide a multi-party custodial framework. And so um, as a custodian, BitGo will hold uh, essentially a portion of the, of the access to private keys. And um, in this case, BitGo is actually a regulated custodian. So we're a regulated custodian and we're working with another regulated custodian in order to um, provide the initial phase of the service. And it comes down to our operational procedures as well as how do we structure our wallets? Um, you know, how much do we, how much do we hold in cold storage versus um, warm and hot wallets? And what is our operational strategy around making sure that the largest amount of the assets at all time are in cold storage, where they're the most secure, and that we have operational procedures that minimize the amount of assets that are in warm wallets, which are essentially wallets within our management and control, and hot wallets, which are effectively in, in environments where uh, we can execute trades. 
And what about legality? Uh, how are you kind of structuring your business and what are some of the legal challenges that you're facing right now? Well, I think the probably the biggest legal decision that we had to make as we started this business was whether or not we wanted to operate in the United States and whether or not we wanted to operate in China. That was uh, that was really kind of a big decision we made early. So we've decided at the at this time um, that our service will not be offered in the United States, primarily because there was lack of clarity um, around token structures and the question about whether or not a utility token could be construed as a security. And so, uh, so we decided that we were going to stay out of the U.S. And one of the goals that we had was we wanted to be one of the, uh, the first or if not one of the first companies that has a, a true utility token that's also um, inside of a regulated uh, business. And you have examples where you have a utility token like Binance where they've done really well in demonstrating the use of a token for access to a platform. But... By and large, they're unregulated uh, today, seeking, I would, I would note, seeking regulation. And then you have companies like Coinbase, who has some forms of regulation uh, through MSB licenses and other licenses that they're now obtaining a few years later, but they don't have a token, right? And so we wanted to be, uh, we wanted to prove there was a model where you could have a true utility token, um, but you can also be regulated at the same time. And we don't really think that that model exists uh, it may exist, but we really think there's a good example of a scaled company where that exists, and we want to be that company. Yeah. And what, can you dive a little bit more into your token economic model? Because you've got a very fascinating model that, uh, you know, this, this is always kind of a tricky thing when you get into the utility token space, and, you know, you're trying to define what a true utility token is versus a security token. Um, can you dive a little bit into your economic model and how your token fits into that? Yeah, um, we spent a lot of time looking at, um, you know, different mechanisms. And I would say when we were looking at this uh, in the very early stages, the concept of burning tokens was still around as a way of restriction of supply. And so after a lot of consultation with um, U.S. and European lawyers, we came to the conclusion that burning was not a, an option because uh, the implications of uh, construing your token as a security. And so we really have uh, three, three functions of our token. Um, one is that the token uh, operates as a way to pay fees. So it really is access to the platform. So if you want to conduct a trade on the platform or if you want us to you want to pay us for being your custodian, those are paid in the B21 token. So it really operates as a fee or an access token. But one of the exciting things we've done is we've built in what we call a, a portfolio staking mechanism. And we've built the service so that we have basically a, a free freemium premium strategy where um, you can come on, you can just pay for the basic services and utilize the platform. But if you want access to premium services, you have to stake a certain amount of tokens in your portfolio, B21 tokens. And so um, a simple way to look at it is it's like a membership. Um, if, you, if you pledge a certain amount of B21 into your portfolio, then you'll have access to the premium services. So we think it creates a, a really nice network effect. The more users we have on the platform, the more people are consuming the token for day-to-day um, activities, but the more people that want access to our premium services, um, the more people who are going to effectively stake those tokens in their portfolio. And so the network creates scarcity uh, in the token. The bigger the network, the more scarce the token becomes because people are going to want access to the premium services. Yep. And this is definitely a use case where I feel like this is a, that's a true utility token where, you know, you can use the application, you can use your platform, you don't have to buy a token. But by using the token and staking that token, 
you get additional features and functionality that you wouldn't necessarily get, and you get those extra premium features. And then if you stake more of it, that potentially opens up more and more functionality for higher volumes and different, you know, different features and functions. So, uh, you know, that's, that's unique because, you know, a lot of projects, you know, they, they try to figure out how to have a token and they can't quite get the economic model to make sense where, you know, it, it, there's a need for a token. Uh, a lot of projects, it's, you know, there's always a the question of why do you need a token? Um, so in your case, can, with your model, given the fact that your model, you know, does make sense, uh, you know, can you just kind of explain why you need that token still? Well, we could have opted, um, I mean, there, there's, uh, I get asked the question, could you build this service without a token? And, and the answer is yes. I and, mean, you know, industry has done this for, for the last few hundred years in developing uh, businesses that didn't need a token. But one of the things we would have had to do, there, there's a, a, there's a, we would have had to charge a membership fee, right? So we would have had to charge people a fee on a, let's say, a monthly basis or annual basis uh, in order to have access to premium services because Typically, when an enterprise offers premium services, that comes at a cost to the enterprise. Um, and so, so we had a choice. Do we want to charge like an active membership fee that someone pays us, you know, $20 a month to be a member of this premium service? Or do we want to just have them say, hey, become an investor in the overall network by, by acquiring the B21 token and put it in your portfolio? And if you do that, I don't need to charge you a membership fee because you're going to create more value uh, in the network by becoming a, essentially a member of the token. And so we think that um, it's a great way to avoid membership fees, for example. That's one good example. Another thing that we did with our token was we set aside 10% of the total supply of the token for what we call rewards and incentives. And uh, one of the key things that we're focusing on in the platform is education. So we've already launched a, a platform called B21 Life which is a free platform today that allows uh, anybody to download. Uh, it's on Android and iOS, and it's education and news about cryptocurrencies and about investing. And so uh, when we launch the full service, uh, one of the things we're going to do with B21 Life is that as an end user, if you consume our content, which means you're educating yourself, we're going to reward you with B21 token. And if you refer users to the platform, which increase the network effect, uh, to reward you a token. So we also built in uh, part of our token supply is essentially part of our, um, our it's, it's our reward system and it's also part of our acquisition cost model. So we're utilizing the token to, to not only uh, provide functionality for a fee and functionality for premium services, we're also utilizing that token to, um, to build the network itself. We want to build knowledgeable customers who understand what they're doing because they're they're investing their money, so we want them to understand what they're investing in. But we're also incentivizing them to help build the network as well. And we're utilizing the token as leverage to do that. Hey, oh, you got a great tech story you want to get published? Maybe something about bots taking over Twitter or how Bitcoin actually works? Or maybe you just have a story about how to build a great software, or a great team. Get your expertise published on Hacker Noon. Email us stories at hackernoon.com and a real human will review your submission and i and you know that's really important because i think a lot of people forget that the real thing that you're building here with any of these blockchain projects is the network and it, it's a network effect that you have to go for and ultimately that's you know that's just as much incentivizing users to use the platform 
um, and getting those users on the platform in the first place and the marketing and you know everything else that goes into that um, that's just as important as you know what exact technology or protocol you're using or you know any of that other stuff uh, you know there's another side of the business where you know it's about getting users through the door and growing your network yeah so in the you know one of our early advisors in this uh, project was Brock Pearson you know Brock's time's hard to get um, <laughs> but we I do spend I, I'm lucky enough to spend some you know quality time getting his feedback and input and the one thing that sticks in my mind that you know that Brock pushed on us was don't forget you're building a community. So, you know, you have this cool product you're developing, you're going after this regulatory stance, um, you're taking on, you know, money flows in an area where there's a lot of friction, but remember, you're building a community. And so we think a lot of the token economics that we've developed are around building a community. It's educate people, incentivize people, and try to create an environment where um, when they take a stake in, 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 in the business, that there's actually a, uh, a reward me mechanism that can be developed by that stake that they're taking. And I would argue trust is a major factor because let's face it, grandma doesn't quite trust Bitcoin yet. Um, you know, she's, yet. Still, she's still going to Bank of America or Wells Fargo uh, and cash and checks by hand. So, um, you know, there's, uh, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely something that needs to be overcome in the mainstream of, you know, can I trust crypto? Is this a safe investment? Uh, you know, and then selecting a platform to be able to use, you know, and invest in crypto, you know, what is that, what is that trusted platform? So trust is a major component here, which is why regulation is also so important. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's the sentiment that we have. And, and I couldn't agree, you know, with what your point more. And that's really why on day one, we, we wanted to be a regulated entity. We had a lot of people ask us, why would you subject yourself to uh, regulation? And we believe the trust factor is the number one uh, point. Um, some of the more advanced things that we're looking forward to do is we're also looking to publish our liquidity, which you don't get today. If you go to an exchange, um, even the, the bigger ones, they don't, they don't provide any data with regards to their assets and liabilities. And so um, while we might not get to their uh, fully automated version of this on day one, um, we definitely want to get to a point where we're publishing our liquidity and we can show uh, really anybody who wants to look at what are our assets, are they verifiable, and what are our liabilities. And we want to publish that information to the general public. We think it's important that we get to that point so that not only do people have the comfort that we're regulated, but if we say we have, you know, a billion dollars under management, we should be able to prove that. And what are your thoughts on the blockchain market right now and cryptocurrency as a whole? Obviously, in 2017, we saw, you know, a major spike. And now 2018 has kind of been this, you know, bear market. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, where we're going and what's next? I saw a great uh, quote the other day. It said, somebody said, in bear markets, people go, the good people go build products. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think, and in the bull markets, people speculate. So... So I think, you know, the, the good product, the good, the people who are trying to do good um, are out building, right? They're, they're, they're coding and they're building products. And I think, I think what we're facing really in 20, uh, in 2018 was lack of productization. So you had a lot of protocols come out um, in 2017 and there was a lot of, uh, you know, different views on how the protocols could scale, how they could be differently, how one could be a monetary system, how one could be a store of value. I mean, there was a lot of that happening, but the productization of those 
underlying technologies really hasn't happened yet. And I think that's what, um, you know, I think the early VCs who got involved also, um, they're, you know, they're kind of used to seeing an MVP come out of companies in six to 12 months from the time they invest. Um, and I think that's really where there's a pain point is that we haven't seen that, what I call the productization of blockchain technologies, where you can point to something and say, okay, we used to use that from the incumbents. And now we use this, you know, it could be, we used to use Twitter, but now we use the new system. Um, and so I think it, we need to overcome that. We need to get to a point as an industry where we can point to things and say, Hey, this is a, this is a productized example of where the blockchain is better and it's being used. It's being used at scale. I think that that's a challenge. I mean, I think on the investment side, uh, the real, the challenge is that I, I do think that the institutional investors do want to come into the market. And I think we're starting to see evidence of that even in the last few weeks. But the issue is that I don't think that the products exist yet. If you really the mandates of the large funds um, don't match up with the investment vehicles that are available today. So getting things like ETFs is important. Um, having things like licensed custodians is important. And I think once we have some of those things in place, then we'll see uh, we'll see institutions actually come in and invest because I don't know. My personal view is I think that blockchain technologies will be a part of our life uh, in the future, and we're, they're just going to be taken for granted about how they you know power subsystems of things that we do every day. Um, but, and I think that the, the I think the you know long term tech investors know that or understand that too. But I think they need the right vehicles to invest in in order for them to come into the market. Hey, hacker! Sorry to interrupt this great podcast. It's David Smook, founder and CEO of Hacker Noon, and we're raising money for the first time, and we're doing it from the people. If you want to buy shares in Hacker Noon, visit hackernoonshares.com. Help us make the best place for tech professionals to publish. And I think, unfortunately, for some people who invested in some of the early ICOs, uh, they're definitely, they potentially didn't understand that, um, you know, and that was an initial challenge that, you know, the blocking blockchain industry faced was, you know, a lot of these projects, it's going to take time for them to get to product. Um, and then they're still subject to all the same things that every other startup is subject to, you know, the co-founding team, do they get along? Can they manage the money? Are they able to invest it properly in research and development? Um, you know, there's, there's all the challenges of being an entrepreneur and then all the complications of creating new economic models, you know, working with emerging technology that isn't quite mainstream yet. Um, so it just adds, you know, layers of complexity to something that's already hard enough, which is starting a business. Yeah. I've had uh, on my Skype handle, I've had a saying, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. I've had it there for around more than 10, 12 years. And the, you know, the point is, is that being an entrepreneur is not easy. There's uh, ideas, you know, are, are pretty easy to come by, but execution is really hard and adoption is even harder. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, you know, in 2017, we saw a lot of people that had good ideas, but they had, they didn't have any experience in executing those ideas. Um, and they didn't really understand things like adoption. How do you, how do you do user acquisition and what are the economic models that work? And so you know, I think that's just natural. You give inexperienced people money and they're going to face those challenges, whether it's an ICO or, you know, an angel investor giving them the money or equity. It's the same challenges. You have to have a good product. You have to know how to develop it and you have to know how to achieve adoption. 
and they're not easy things to do. And you've been in the fintech space for a while. So, you know, we're on the Hack and Doom podcast and I got to ask, what is something that you've had to hack in your life? Oh, I have a few of them, but I have a fun one I'll tell you about, which was, uh, it was some years ago, but if you remember the uh, prepaid phone cards that were really popular in the, in the late 90s where you'd get a 5 10 or $20 card and, mm. and actually sold like Call Africa, Call Mexico. They were very specifically marketed. Um, and, and the problem with those cards is that you would, you would go to a store and you'd put the 5 the 10 the $20 on the, on the rack. And then for whatever reason, you'd sell out of the $10 ones. Um, and so the sales would dry up because no one wanted to buy the $20 one and no one wanted to buy the $5 one. And that was different in every community where these were sold. And this is a, you know, this was a multi-billion dollar market. And so what we, we, uh, what we hacked was we actually hacked the, the Visa network. And the way we did that was we wanted to get to a single card um, that could be put into a store that had no value assigned to it so that you could just put a card on, on the shelf and say, you know, how much do you want? You want $3, $10, $50? We call them dyna dyma dynamic load values. Mm -hmm. What we did was on the back of a phone card in the MagStripe, we actually put a Visa virtual card. Um, and because we were the issuer and the processor of that card, every time there was a, a, a that was swiped in a credit card terminal to do an authorization, the messages that would come to us, the technical messages. So what we did was we put uh, the number 99 in front. We told the cashier, hey, when you want to activate and load this generic card, you key in 99 and then you use, uh, let's say, $10. would be $10. So what would happen was uh, Visa would route that message to us and say that the person was trying to authorize $99,100. But really, whenever we saw a message that had 99, um, our back end would pick that up. We would associate that to the phone card in the back end system. And we would decline the transaction back to, to the merchant. So the merchant knew that success was be, would be when I get a decline. So we had a train, but we essentially were able to use the Visa Rails to send a message to ourselves for free that said activate and load this card. So it was like a, doing a decline transaction. Yeah, we would decline them all. Um, we would decline the authorizations, but we had data that we needed, right? We, we knew which card was being activated. We knew how much money was going on it. And so we'd just throw a decline back to the merchant network and we would activate the card and load it on the back end. And uh, people copied us. We, we did this in the late 90s. People copied us and there was billions and billions of transactions. Eventually Visa, um, you know, charged people to use that functionality. <laughs> but, uh, we hacked it for a while and it worked and it was perfectly fine. We were declining an authorization. So, so originally, Visa did not charge any fee if there was a decline transaction, and then eventually they figured out that you know people were using this hack, and then started charging for it. Yeah, you could then sign up for essentially doing a. Uh, a it was a non. It was like a non-financial transaction, right? So it was a messaging transaction, um, but we were using it for messaging before anybody thought about it. Yeah, I, I mean, you'd think they would have just created a messaging solution rather than just slapping a fee on there. Uh, but I guess that's the banking industry. So Well, they own the railroad tracks, right? So they want to charge you every time you drive over those railroad tracks. That's the way that that's the way it works. And so anyways, it was a fun hack. It worked. Um, it scaled. And and eventually that that's what led to uh, my first project where we developed proprietary technology 
And then that's why we got these seven patents for dealing with it in our own proprietary way instead of using someone else's network. Awesome. Uh, so what, uh, what are your kind of your final thoughts on, uh, you know, the blockchain industry and what you're working on and where things are going? Well, as I say, my, myself and my co-founding team, we're, we're all in. We believe that blockchain is, uh, is the future. We believe that investing in and the alternative asset class of crypto is, uh, should be you know, part of people's future portfolios. So we, we think there's, uh, the technology is going to stick. Um, it's going to become meaningful in a lot of different uh, market segments. And um, we're committed as a team to implementing uh, technology and solutions that take friction out and make it easy, uh, and I say safer in the sense that uh, providing people more education, easier tools, um, more trusted service providers to invest in crypto as it grows. We view this like the early internet days. Um, you know, nobody knew who to quote-unquote bet on that was going to win. Um, I always tell people, if you're old enough, do you remember who Ask Jeeves was <laughs> or AOL? And do you remember when you used to get those CD-ROMs in the mail? Um, I never imagined there was going to be an internet provider other than AOL, and they were everything. And now AOL is irrelevant. So, you know, I feel like we're in those early days where we're looking at the Ask Jeeves and we're looking at the Alta Vistas and the AOLs of the world. We don't know exactly who the Google and the Facebook's going to be, but um, you know, we we believe we can create an environment where people can um, invest in these emerging companies and do it in a do it in a very uh, fun and and uh, you know, reasonable way. And are there any digital asset classes that you're particularly excited about? I really like uh, the tokenization of real property. Um, I think that's going to be a very exciting asset class. Where you know, I always say, I say, take an iconic building. You know, that um, would you be interested in owning a, a fractional share of an iconic building? I think that type of uh, of tokenization of real property is going to be really exciting and those are relatively illiquid you know if you have a building in in new york that's worth you know four billion dollars it might sell every 10 or 20 years and i think the idea of creating a portion of that uh, asset that's freely traded on an, on a secondary market is exciting because you know if you start out the building's worth a billion dollars and 10 years later it's worth five billion it'd be really interesting to fractionalize a portion of that equity and sell it on a free traded market so that the value can actually uh, evolve with the value of the underlying asset. But I think that's, that's an interesting uh, area that I'm going to watch closely is, is tokenization of real property. Awesome. And where can people find you? So you can find us uh, on the internet at www.b21.io. Um, so that's b21.io. And we're on all of the uh, regular social media channels, so Telegram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. And our handle is at B21Official on any of those uh, channels you can find us. So the at symbol B21Official. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>